ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Hello and welcome. I'm Tom Gilson. Today on ID the Future, we hear the first half of an extended conversation between Casey Luskin, Associate Director of the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture, and a pair of veteran podcasters in the realms of science, philosophy, history, and faith, Brian Auten and Chad Gross of Apologetics 315. We say thanks to Apologetics 315 for permission to use their interview with Casey Luskin here. Hello and welcome to the Apologetics 315 podcast with your hosts, Brian Auten and Chad Gross. Join us for conversations and interviews on the topics of apologetics, evangelism, and the Christian worldview. I don't believe in God. I believe in science. Today's interview is with Casey Luskin on the topic of intelligent design. Chad, how are you doing this week? I'm doing really well. I am excited to interview Casey Luskin. I've been reading his work and listening to him for probably over 10 years. So I, in some respects, feel like I know him, but I was telling a friend of mine the other day that if somebody said, you know, if I was in this bizarre scenario where somebody said, you have to pick somebody to debate the topic of intelligent design, you know, to debate the merits of intelligent design. And if they win, you get to live. And if they lose, you have to die. (laughs) Who would you, who would you pick? I have to say that the first person that popped in my head was Casey Luskin. Well, he has done plenty of work on intelligent design. Let's look at his bio here. He's a scientist and an attorney with graduate degrees in science and law, giving him expertise in both the scientific and legal dimensions of the debate over evolution. He holds a PhD in geology from the University of Johannesburg, where he specialized in paleomagnetism and the early plate tectonic history of South Africa. He earned a law degree from the University of San Diego, where he focused on First Amendment law, education law, and environmental law. His bachelor's and master's degree in earth sciences are from the University of California, San Diego, where he studied evolution extensively at the graduate and undergraduate levels and conducted geological research at Scripps Institution for Oceanography. Dr. Luskin has been a California licensed attorney since 2005, practicing primarily in the area of evolution education in public schools and defending academic freedom for scientists who face discrimination because of their support for intelligent design. In his role at Discovery Institute, Dr. Luskin works as Associate Director of the Center for Science and Culture, where he helps direct the ID 3.0 research program and assists and defends scientists, educators, and students who seek to freely study, research, and teach about the scientific debate over Darwinian evolution and ID. So you can also check out our previous interview with Casey Luskin, which we will link in the show notes, but I'm excited to have him with us today. Let's go to the interview. Let's get ready. Switch me on. Casey Luskin, thanks for joining us. It's great to be with you guys. Yeah, we just both want to publicly say we appreciate all the work you've been doing. Over 15 years, we've been listening to your stuff, reading your materials, and I think you're like the go-to person that we would want to talk to about intelligent design and everything surrounding that. So thanks for your work, first of all. Well, I appreciate that. That's very kind of you. And I remember doing an interview with you guys a few years back, and it was a great interview, and I really enjoyed it. So I appreciate what you guys do, too. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back. Can you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you got interested in intelligent design? Sure. So this will take us back a little bit to the late 
1990s, when I was an undergraduate student at UC San Diego, University of California, San Diego, I was studying earth sciences. And even before I declared my major, I was taking all kinds of courses in evolution. I mean, pretty much throughout my undergrad years, every time I had an elective course, I would try to make it in focused on some kind of an evolution topic most of the time. And so uh, in the course of that, I started to realize, okay, you know, this evolution view, there's a lot of evidence for it, but I'd like to also understand other views. And so during the summer after my freshman year of college, I had an internship. And during the lunch break every day at that summer internship, I read a book that a friend had recommended to me called Darwin's Black Box. Mm-hmm. And that was my first real introduction mm-hmm. to intelligent design. And what I realized while I was reading Darwin's Black Box was that sort of these ideas that I'd had while sitting in these evolution courses that, okay, we have all these complex features in life, but how do you evolve them in a stepwise evolutionary pathway so that they stay functional and natural selection is preserving and favoring each step along that pathway? Um, how can you do that when you have these complex features? It kind of seems like there you would fit, you would hit places where there might be non-functional intermediates or deleterious stages, or at least steps where you require a lot of new uh, functionality, new components to be present before you get some new advantage. And I, in my brain at that time, I hadn't really like fully articulated a lot of this. And when I read Darwin's Black Box, it was like Michael Behe has put into words exactly what my freshman undergraduate brain was like trying to figure out. Like it made so oh, wow. much sense. And so from there, it just went downhill. I started reading um, more <laughs> intelligent design books. I mean, there were books by William Dembski at that time, uh, some stuff by Philip Johnson. I read, uh, you know, also towards the end of my undergraduate years, I read Icons of Evolution by Jonathan Wells mm-hmm. and a number of other books that are sort of maybe not quite so well known and really just got interested in the topic. And so uh, at the end of my junior year of college, uh, Philip Johnson was actually brought to come speak at UC San Diego. Through that, I decided to host some post lecture discussion groups. Um, and I, I volunteered to do this and they were going really well. And we, were, we invited all kinds of people to come to these post lecture discussion groups, you know, undergrads, grad students, even some faculty members. Um, we had atheists and Christians and other people of other faiths and everything in between. We just had a really wonderful time talking about these issues. And what I realized in these discussion groups we were having was that we were having conversations that so often me and my friends and my classes wanted to have about origins. We were actually able to ask hard questions and to challenge evolutionary ideas, whereas in our classes, that was almost never allowed to happen. I mean, I mean, the vast majority of the time, it was you just sort of take notes and accept the evolutionary view. And I was not ever the kind of student who would rock the boat in class anyway. I was usually just the kind of kid who would take notes, pay attention, and, and I wasn't there to like, you know, give the teacher a hard time. But nonetheless, these opportunities to have these, these conversations were really not happening. And so out of these, these Philip Johnson lecture discussion groups, we decided to start a student club called the Intelligent Design and Evolution Awareness, or IDEA Club for short. And the IDEA Club uh, really was a great success at UC San Diego. Again, we had all kinds of folks coming of all different beliefs and backgrounds. We were all very committed to having a civil, friendly, and, and just kind and you know, a very, uh, very amiable discussion with each other. No matter what your background was, everybody was welcome to come and share their views. And we really had a, some very fruitful conversations. We would invite evolutionary biology professors sometimes to come and present their ideas at the club and had a great time doing this. Um, and all folks of all different backgrounds are welcome. Um, and so anyway, when I then graduated from UC San Diego, uh, some club members and I decided to start a nonprofit to help other students to discuss 
uh, these topics and start idea clubs on their own university campuses. And that was the Idea Center, which still exists uh, to this day. Mm -hmm. So anyways, that was how I first got interested in intelligent design. It was basically as an undergraduate student wanting to have the opportunity to explore this scientific debate over evolution, Darwinian evolution and intelligent design, but not having the opportunity to do that in my classes. So me and some friends created a venue where we could do that. And that was the Idea Club. And from that, I, I got involved with the intelligent design uh, issue. Tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing right now with this Discovery Institute and that sort of thing. Sure. So uh, my background at Discovery is that I, I first started working there actually in 2005. And from 2005 to 2010, I was primarily had a job that was mostly involved with sort of a legal or public education policy type work where I would advise teachers and educators and school board members and state legislators how to teach the issue in public schools without getting into legal trouble and, and teaching evolution objectively, essentially, mm -hmm. in public schools, and also providing a lot of academic freedom uh, support for scientists who are being persecuted because of their views on intelligent design. Um, in 2011, I had sort of a job shift where I was uh, more doing science-related work, um, helping just at, you know sort of to, to get start, started to get involved with managing some of the research that we do at Discovery Institute, that we, the research that we fund, and making sure that people have the resources they need to do their research, uh, the, some of the research projects that we're funding. Uh, then in 2015, I left Discovery for about four and a half years and moved to South Africa, actually, where I did a PhD in geology at the University of Johannesburg and came back from South Africa uh, at the uh, sort of beginning of the pandemic in 2020. Uh, my wife and I were told by the U.S. State Department that we needed to leave South Africa immediately, or we might not able to be able to get home. They could not promise us that the borders were going to stay open. Nobody knew what was going to happen at that point. So they said, you better get home. So we did that. Um, and thankfully, when I came back to Discovery in 2020, uh, I kind of, we kind of came back unexpectedly and it was quite shocking the way it all went down. Uh, we came back, we didn't have a car, we didn't have cell phones. We were not expecting to be home in the U.S. so soon and going through a lot of what I guess now I know is reverse culture shock. I didn't know it at the time. Yeah. Um, but uh, when we came back, you know, I, we had no, I had no job. I had nothing going on. So I sort of re remained in contact with my friends at Discovery Institute. And I said, well, look, I don't even have a way to pay my mortgage right now. Um, is there any chance there's a position for me? And thankfully, uh, John West and Steve Meyer were very kind enough to offer me a position. And I was rehired as associate director of the Center for Science and Culture at Discovery Institute. So the work I do now is not entirely different from some of the work I did in the past. I still work with teachers um, and school board members and educators on how to teach the issue objectively and teaching evolution accurately in public schools. I still provide uh, you know, academic freedom defense for scientists who are being discriminated against because of their, their views on evolution and intelligent design. But what I think is dominating most of my time these days and has really been an exciting thing to see grow so much during the years that I was uh, gone from Discovery, is I get to do a lot of managing research. We have something called the ID 3.0 Research Program at Discovery Institute. Um, and I can tell you a little bit of the background on this. The year before I left Discovery in 2015, uh, John West and Steve Meyer knew that there was some new funding to fund some new research projects. We'd funded research projects before then, but, but we knew that we had some opportunities to fund new research. And they asked me to come up with a list of about 50 potential research projects within intelligent design that were that could be funded and uh, done by folks in the ID research community. And so that was pretty easy, actually, to come up with 50. We'd been talking about these ideas for a long time. You know, these ideas were in the air. Uh, but what I started to do is I started to crowdsource ideas for ID research 
and just started contacting many of the scientists in the ID community, uh, asking them, hey, if you had a research project that you could do inspired by intelligent design, testing by intelligent design, testing intelligent design, maybe using intelligent design as a guide or heuristic to do research, what would you do? So crowdsourcing this, the ideas just started flowing. And in the end, I handed to Steve Meyer and John West uh, as sort of my, one of my parting gifts before I left Discovery at the end of 2015, a 100-something page prospectus for a research program with over 225 ideas for ID research projects. And wow. this, I titled this prospectus ID 3.0. And that was where the name then came from. So what kind of happened was I gave them, you know, all these ideas and they weren't all mine. I mean, again, I crowdsourced this and I, I made it clear, you know, this person gave me, gave, gave us this idea and that person gave us this idea. A lot of great ideas when you just, uh, just start pestering the dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of scientists in the ID movement, you know, and asking them, what do you like to do with research? So, um, while I was gone, then they made the ID 3.0 research program a reality. So far, we've only been able to fund about 20 to 30 projects, but still that's a great start. I mean, that's a big research program to be funding mm -hmm. 20 to 30 projects. And so I kind of felt like when I came back to discovery in uh, 2020, I kind of felt like, okay, this is like, I, I gave birth to this child, this ID 3.0 research program. And then I abandoned it for about four and a half, five <laughs> years. And then I came back and this child is now, you know, start slightly grown up and I'm supposed to raise it now. And I was like learning about how well these projects had succeeded during the four and a half, five years that I was gone. It was really exciting to do that, you guys. And mm. I still enjoy wow. getting to manage our research program. Um, and it's funny, you know, for a long time, um, and we can talk about this more, but, you know, ID critics have sort of just been in denial about the fact that there is ID research. And I understand, you know, a lot of these points are debatable. Folks don't always agree with intelligent design. They can agree. They can disagree with the conclusions. That's fine. I have, I have no problem with any of that. But, you know, the question of whether or not Discovery Institute is funding real research and there's real papers being published in peer-reviewed journals, these are sort of black and white questions that should not be denied. I mean, if you want to have a serious conversation about intelligent design, let's at least agree on the nature of reality. And the nature of reality is that Discovery Institute and others in the ID community are funding real ID research, and that research is being published in peer-reviewed papers. You might not like that fact, but there's a lot of facts about reality that we don't always like, and we need to acknowledge them when they are reality. Yeah. Here, here. You guys like that yes. fact, but you know, some of our, and I could, yes. I could cite some critics, you know, who've made some interesting comments along these lines, but anyway, go, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, first of all, I remember when you left and I remember reading about it on evolutionnews.org, which is a great website that I recommend to our listeners. And I remember being, <laughs> I remember thinking he, he can't leave. <laughs> he said he can't leave. And then when I read that you were coming back, that you were going to co-edit a book with uh, Bill Dembski and uh, Joseph Holden, I was super excited. But before we go any further in the discussion, I know this seems rather elementary, but I was wondering if for listeners, you could just tell them, what do we mean when we say intelligent design? And the reason I thought it was important to start kind of with that question is because even in your recent discussion on unbelievable with Adam Shapiro, even he brought up the fact that the term is sometimes used inappropriately by people on both sides of the aisle. And so when you're talking about intelligent design, you know, what do you mean by that? No, I appreciate that. It's, it's really important to define our terms and explain what we're talking about here. And not everybody is familiar with intelligent design. So I would say that within the ID movement, there is pretty strong consensus about what intelligent design is. And we, we, I think pretty much Everybody I know within the ID movement would agree that intelligent design is a scientific theory 
which holds that many aspects of life in the universe are best explained by an intelligent cause rather than an undirected cause, say, like natural selection. And so how do we detect design or what does this mean? Well, intelligent design is based upon our observations that when intelligent agents act, they create certain types of information. And the kind of information which is produced when intelligent agents act is what we call complex and specified information. Okay, so what is what do we mean when we say complex and specified information? Well, roughly speaking, something is complex if it is unlikely. And so we could say that, you know, for example, I use this example a lot. The sound waves that are coming out of my mouth right now represent a very unlikely pattern of vibrations in air molecules. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it was designed. I mean, we could have unlikely vibrations in sound that are coming from, you know, dropping a bucket of uh, golf balls on the floor, you know, or uh, rain falling on, on the roof of a, a tin roof of a house. You're going to get a lot of unlikely patterns of vibrations from that. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's some kind of designed pattern going on there. So what do we do to actually detect design is we look for an unlikely um, scenario that also matches some independent pattern. And when we find that matching independent pattern, we say that it is specified. So the unlikely patterns of uh, sound vibrations coming out of my mouth right now are not just unlikely, they're also specified because they conform to the, the sounds of the English language. And anybody who recognizes you know, the English language hopefully can tell that these words were designed. And so this is how we detect design by looking for complex and specified information. And we can use it. There's a variety of ways that we can test biological or natural systems for high levels of complex and specified information. But the bottom line is that when we're doing this, we are finding in nature the kind of information and complexity, which in our experience comes only from an intelligent agent. Um, and so this is a positive argument for design where we're, we're based upon finding what we know from experience are the predictable products of intelligent action. And so when we find these in nature, we are scientifically justified in inferring that intelligent agency was involved in producing this CSI-rich system. So, I mean, just to really, really keep it very basic right now, you know, what do we see in biology? Well, the very basis of life is a language-based code in our DNA, where the sequences of the nucleotide bases in our DNA is very unlikely. There's no physical or chemical law that dictates the ordering of the nucleotide bases, and yet they match the exact patterns that are needed to produce functional proteins. So we have an unlikely arrangement of these nucleotide bases in our DNA that is specified to match the patterns that produce functional proteins. So right there, you have high levels of complex and specified information in our DNA, and it's really encoded in a biochemical language. And I like to use the example of a DVD and a DVD player to explain what's going on with the information in our DNA and cells. Um, if you just have a DVD on its own, it's really not good for anything, right? I mean, maybe you can play mm -hmm. Frisbee with it or something. I used to do that in college. There were eucalyptus trees next to our dorm. And we'd, we'd take those old AOL uh, installation CDs that they'd give away on campus and throw them into the eucalyptus bark and, you know, they would stick. That probably wasn't the most environmentally <laughs> friendly thing to do. But you, if you just have a DVD or a CD, there's really not much you can do with, with them. What you need is some kind of machinery to read the information on the DVD and then process that information, convert it to a useful output. Well, the same exact thing is going on in our cells. If you just have the information in the DNA, it's really not good for anything. Our cells require molecular machines like the ribosome or RNA polymerase or DNA, all these different machines that can help to transcribe and then translate and process the information in DNA into some kind of a useful output. Okay, so if you don't have the machinery 
to basically process the information in the DNA, then you're not going to be able to use it. And so this is why people have compared the information in DNA to a computer program. I think this is sort of a, a very close, direct paraphrase of what Bill Gates said. And I don't know that he's an ID proponent, but he observed that DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any that we ever created. So that's a very astute observation that we literally see in our DNA, something like computer programming, commands and codes that are interpreted by machinery in the cell to give you some useful output. Uh, and then what is that output? What is the product of the information processing in our cells? Well, our cells are literally producing machines. We have machines making machines in our cells, okay? And so these machines are running around performing many of the important functions in our cells, like producing proteins, uh, waste disposal, transportation, helping the cell to replicate, serving as sort of a CPU to process the information in the DNA, disposing of things you don't want, recycling. All these molecular machines are producing features and functions that a cell needs to survive. And so what, what it comes down to is what do we see in life? Okay, we see a language-based code that is rich in complex and specified information in our DNA that then is converted through a system of computer-like information processing where we have machines that are reading the information and basically interpreting commands and codes in our DNA and then giving you an output. And the output of that process is machine-like structures that are performing all of these features and functions in our cells. So where in our experience does high CSI language-based code come from? Or where in our experience does computer-like information processing come from? Or where in our experience do machines and machine-type structures come from? In all of our experience, these things come only from intelligence. So we have, again, a positive argument for design based upon our experience-based knowledge of what happens when intelligent agents operate and what they can produce. And I think it's a very compelling argument uh, for design in life. Yes. Wow. But the thing that I find fascinating is, as you're talking about encoded information, something needs to encode it and something needs to decode it. But those machines that encode and decode themselves have been built through the product of the same system. So where did the original information come from? We, it, it literally, we have recursion within life. We have systems that help to produce their, themselves, basically. Causal circularity is what we call it. And you made a great point, Brian. It's basically, for those who are familiar with the term irreducible complexity, it's a viciously massive, irreducibly complex system where a huge number of parts are necessary for the system to be able to function, to perform what we call homeostasis, where cells are able to maintain their internal order. That does not have my accident. And it is not enough to just get you know, the lucky RNA or DNA strand. You need an entire suite and factory, city-like uh, subsystems of factories that can keep the system going. Um, and it's a lot of complexity. And if it's not all there, it doesn't work. So how are you going to evolve it by sort of an unguided step-by-step -step process? I don't know. And I don't know anybody who has the answer either. Hmm. Yeah. Part of me is even frustrated that I have to bring it up, but because of the continual confusions that I see, again, it came up in your discussion with Adam Shapiro that sometimes the term ID is, is misused and misunderstood. One of the things is that when individuals speak of creationism and ID, they almost use them interchangeably or they use them as the same, as if they're the same thing. So for example, skeptic Michael Shermer, I've actually heard him call intelligent design, intelligent design creationism. So I'm curious as to how is creationism and ID different? And is ID simply creation, you know, kind of a creationism Trojan horse? So yeah, so you're certainly right, Chad, that 
There is commonly confusion between ID and creationism. Sometimes it is deliberate confusion to try to perpetuate misconceptions about intelligent design. Sometimes it is um, honest and unintended confusion from people who are just not familiar with the issue. And so uh, we can sort of address both, I think, with one answer. So why is intelligent design uh, not creationism? Um, well, first off, creationism always begins with some kind of a religious presupposition or a religious text or some kind of a you know religious argument. Um, and it typically then leads you to belief or trying to make an argument for the existence of some kind of a divine supernatural God. Okay. Um, and typically when we, see, when we hear creationism, we associate it with sort of the young earth creationist view, the idea that, you know, the, the best way to interpret Genesis is that the earth is six to 10,000 years old. And uh, we have that particular way of interpreting Genesis. And, and that is, you know, the way they try to then go and find science that supports that. So ID takes a very different approach. First off, ID is not committed to young earth creationism. In fact, uh, many ID proponents accept an old age of the earth, myself being one of them. That being said, uh, really intelligent design is not about the age of things. It's about whether things were designed. And so we do have folks in our research communities. Uh, many of them are old earthers, but we have young earthers too. And they all agree that the evidence points to living systems and, and systems elsewhere in nature as having been designed. So it's really something where, you know, whatever you think the age is, as long as you think that there's evidence for design, then you can get along with intelligent design arguments. Um, and so it's not a theory about the age of the earth, so to speak. Um, now, as far as the, the other sort of broader definition of creationism, something that always starts with a religious presupposition or starting with some religious text and then trying to make an argument that goes sort of into religious questions like, is there a divine creator? Um, you know, who is the, what is the, the, the identity of the designer? Um, creationism always does those things, but intelligent design does not. Intelligent design tries to keep the conversation on a scientific level. And so intelligent design has no scientific presuppositions. In the argument that I, I made for intelligent design just a couple minutes ago, I didn't start off with quoting any religious scripture or saying, you know, well, if we assume that there's a divine creator, no, I didn't say anything like that. What I said is that we start by observing what intelligent agents do when they when they produce things and what kind of information they they generate and we observe that intelligent agents this is from our observation of the world around us intelligent agents produce high levels of complex and specified information we can then make a that's an observation we can then make a testable prediction that we will or a hypothesis that we will find high csi in nature and we can then experimentally test for high csi through genetic knockout experiments or mutational sensitivity tests or theoretical calculations, we can experimentally and, uh, and computationally detect high CSI in natural systems. And so when we find it, we are then justified in concluding that design is the best explanation because in our experience, only intelligent agents can produce high levels of, of complex and specified information or CSI. That argument right there is a scientific argument. It requires no religious presuppositions. And so, that, and that's why we have within the ID movement People have such a wide variety of beliefs and backgrounds. I mean, the ID movement is not just a bunch of Christians uh, sitting around saying kumbaya to each other. We've got Jews in the movement. Uh, some very close, uh, very close trusted colleagues that I work with are, are, are from a Jewish uh, religious background. We have folks from Muslim backgrounds in the ID community. Some of my researchers that I love to talk to and get their brilliant insights uh, come from a Muslim uh, religious background. We even have agnostics or people of uh, we have people from Hindu and Eastern religious backgrounds in the ID movement. So how can all these people agree on something if they don't share the same religious beliefs? And the answer is 
their views on intelligent design are not being driven or shaped by their religious beliefs. Their views on intelligent design are being driven by the data. And of course, you know, mm. people in the ID movement are very open about their own religious backgrounds. I mean, I try to make it a point whenever I speak to a, whether it's a religious audience or a secular audience or whatever it might be, to say that I'm a Christian. I mean, I believe that the God of the Bible is the designer. And I nobody in the ID movement, whether they're Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, agnostic, whatever they're coming from, nobody tries to hide their own personal religious or non-religious views. You can find complete openness from people on these questions. But we make it clear that, look, I mean, my personal view that, that the God of the Bible is, is the designer, it's not a direct conclusion from intelligent design. I mean, certainly the idea that there's design in nature is very epistemically friendly to belief in a creator God, uh, which I believe for, for reasons aside from intelligent design, um, it certainly is very supportive of that, but it's not requiring you to have a particular religious belief about the identity of the designer. For example, the, the DNA, the information in my DNA, um, it might be screaming out there was an intelligent cause that, that made it, but that information doesn't say made by Yahweh or made by Allah or made by Yoda or made by Buddha or made by whoever you think the designer may be. It's just a, an information-rich language-based code that points to a need for an intelligent cause, but it doesn't say who that intelligent cause is. So intelligent design does not start with religious presuppositions, and it tries to limit its claims to what we can learn through the scientific evidence. Of course, there might be larger implications from those scientific conclusions that we make, and, and those are fine to talk about too, but intelligent design tries to keep, as a science, it tries to keep the, the conversation on a scientific level. Creationism, on the other hand, is always starting with a religious text, usually the book of Genesis, and it's always trying to go into religious conclusions, like, you know, who is the designer? What is the designer's plan for salvation? Of course, there are very important, those are very important questions to ask as a Christian. I think those are very, very important questions. Intelligent design just does not address them. Um, but that being said, does that mean intelligent design is, is useless for those of us who are Christians? And, you know, no, absolutely not. I mean, if you want to help someone see that there is scientific evidence that, you know, basically this unguided evolutionary story is not true, that there is evidence for a designer who made life in the universe, then intelligent design is exactly the tool you want for that job. If you want to take someone all the way to Christ on the cross, well, intelligent design is not going to get you that far. I'm sorry. It's just, that's not what it is. It's a, it's a scientific theory that tells us that there is evidence for design in nature, that an intelligent cause is responsible for many things that we see in the world around us. Um, and that's a very powerful argument. It can be very compelling to speak to folks who maybe are coming from a more skeptical background and speaking the language of science that they will listen to um, and help them to understand that there is evidence for a designer. But, you know, I'm not going to say that intelligent design answers every important question out there. Of course it doesn't. Some people see that as a weakness. I see that as a strength. It's simply an argument for an intelligent cause in nature. And by keeping it on that scientific level, you can speak to your scientifically minded friends with intelligent design. And if they want to go further and ask bigger questions, then there's other arguments you can bring in from philosophy and theology and history and prophecy to help them understand, okay, now you've agreed that there's evidence for an intelligent designer. Now let's ask, who is that designer? Well, you can address that question through arguments that go, they're outside of intelligent design, but intelligent design is a very useful tool to help people see the evidence for a designer. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I think anyone claiming, especially since ID has become, you know, such a more discussed topic. I think anybody claiming that creationism and intelligent design are the same thing or either dis disingenuous or misinformed. I agree completely. And one of the things I love about intelligent design is exactly what you're saying, that it gets us to a designer. 
there there's design. So who that designer is, I almost put I almost feel like it puts science in its place in a good way because it says, look, science can only tell us so much. And if you want to go beyond design, then that's what those other disciplines are for, especially when we have so many people that almost are acting nowadays as if science can give us all knowledge. Right. Sure. So I really find that attractive about intelligent design. Yeah. I mean, certainly there are very important things that we can know that science is not going to be able to answer. Now, that being said, intelligent design, I believe it is a science and I believe that it gives us uh, answers to important questions, other important questions within science. Yeah. Casey, I wonder if maybe you could give me a few examples of testable predictions that intelligent design can offer. And the reason I ask that is because some people would object to ID and like just hand wave it by saying, well, it's it's not true science because uh, it's not making predictions and uh, it's not testable. So how would you challenge that? Can you give us some examples of testable predictions and things of that nature? There are so many ways we can uh, make testable predictions from intelligent design. I think one of my favorite ones has to do with finding function for junk DNA. When I first got involved with this debate in the late 90s and early 2000s, you know, we'd be talking about intelligent design and skeptics or critics would say, well, what about all that DNA in our cells that doesn't do anything? This was basically in the early days of our understanding of genomics. Uh, some of it was even before the Human Genome Project was published. But you know, even after the Human Genome Project was published, people knew that only about maybe 2 to 3% of our DNA actually encodes proteins. So what is the other 97 98% doing? Well, evolutionary biologists, by and large, just assumed that that 97 98% is junk DNA. It's not doing anything. And so we would get hit with arguments constantly from people. Why is 90% of our DNA basically useless genetic junk? Even from some of uh, folks in the theistic evolution community who reject intelligence design, like Francis Collins. Uh, Francis Collins, in his 2006 book, The Language of God, said that 45% of our genome is, quote unquote, flotsam and jetsam. And of course, flotsam and jetsam is, is basically trash floating in the ocean. I mean, that, that's the definition yeah. of it. So he's saying 45% of our genome is trash. I mean, many of, and Francis Collins is, of course, a Christian, but he's a thoroughgoing evolutionist as well as, as far as the way he believes that life has developed. And so basically, we have the strong claim from evolutionary biology that huge percentages, if not the vast majority of our genome is useless genetic junk. Well, ID has always predicted otherwise. Going back to some of ID's earliest days in the early to mid 1990s, there are ID theorists on the record having predicted that we would find function for junk DNA. Uh, William Dembski comes to mind in an article he wrote, I think it was in the 98, and another ID uh, proponent named Forrest Mims wrote a letter to the journal Science uh, predicting function for junk DNA in the early uh, in the early to mid nineties. So why did ID predict this? Well, in our experience, again, we have to always go back to first, first principles to understand why ID makes prediction. We we understand the way intelligent agents operate. We observe intelligent agents. We understand what do they do when they design things, and then when you we use those observations to make testable predictions or hypotheses about what we'll find. Well, when intelligent agents make things, they typically do things for a reason. Usually, there is a purpose for the reason that something is there. And if you find a part on a system and you don't know what it does, and you know that system, you think that system was designed, well, you should probably assume that that part has a function. Maybe you haven't discovered it yet. Maybe that function is difficult for us to understand. Maybe it's only used occasionally, or maybe it was used in the past and it's fallen out of use. But regardless, we should not assume that those parts have no function. So what ID proponents have done is they have 
predicted that we would find function for this junk DNA. And, and for a long time, you guys, that evidence for function for junk DNA was sort of unknown. I mean, in the early 2000s, we would say, look, there's so much we do not know about the genome. Let's take a wait and see approach and not assume that just because we don't know what it does, that therefore it does nothing. And I think that that wait and see approach that ID advocated in its early days to non-coding DNA or junk DNA was really a very wise approach because I would say since maybe the beginning of the 2010s, uh, we've seen an explosion of papers. Well, actually, even, even going into the, into the 2000s as well, we've seen an explosion of scientific papers that have found function for what used to be called junk DNA. I mean, if I could tell you the number of papers that say, you know, non-coding, this is, you hear this kind of stuff all the time. Non-coding DNA used to be considered genetic junk, but we now know that it performs important functions. I mean, you can Google that phrase and you'll find hits in press releases from mainstream universities talking about their research. And it's true. It used to be called junk DNA. And there are now quite a few people that are saying, no, we should not call it junk DNA anymore. And that to me, that's really, uh, really uh, striking. Um, and so uh, what are some of the functions for junk DNA? Well, primarily what junk DNA is doing is if you think of building a house, you have the bricks, you have the parts, you have the boards and the nails and the brick and the mortar, the proteins encode the parts, okay? But something else has to provide the blueprint. Where do you put the parts? How many parts do you put there? When do you build the parts? What do you do with the parts once you have them? A lot of that is being, being controlled by the non-coding DNA that basically regulates gene expression. And so the quote-unquote junk DNA is now known to have highly important functions. Um, there was an article that, came, article that came out in the journal Nature about a year ago in February of 2021, and it showed the number of known functions for non-coding DNA sequences that, that we found over time. And literally, it was, a, it was a chart that had an exponential curve, okay? I mean, the number of sequences we found that have a uh, function for junk DNA is just off the charts. And so uh, I'm, I'm trying to find what it said, but that I'll have to see if I can find it later. But basically that, that article said, had the same line like this, you know, non-coding DNA, what we used to call junk, something along those lines. So I would say that uh, junk DNA is really going out of favor. In fact, in the last, uh, last year, there was an article that said um, uh, that, that basically we should get rid of the term junk DNA uh, and it sort of become a passe term. So I think this is a, a very good prediction of intelligent design that has turned out to be a valid prediction. And if we had gone with evolution's prediction, evolutionary biology's prediction that uh, junk DNA has no function, then we would never have taken the time to study it. Uh, it's really people who were bucking the trend within evolutionary biology who found these functions for non-coding junk DNA. Okay, so that's one prediction. What's another prediction? Well, of course, we talked earlier about predicting high levels of complex and specified information in biology. Um, that's an obvious prediction that intelligence design makes. It's very testable. Douglas Axe, I talked about this in the Adam Shapiro debate. Douglas Axe has done research looking for high levels of complex and specified information in our DNA. And what he did is he took the beta-lactamase enzyme in E. coli, which is an enzyme that helps uh, these bacteria to break down um, antibiotic drugs. And he, what he did is he found that the likelihood of producing a functional beta-lactamase enzyme by chance has, is basically somewhere around one in 10 to the 77th power, what basically one in 10 to the 77th sequences will yield a functional wow. protein that can perform this, this kind of a function. Okay. And so that right there is high CSI. You have a very unlikely sequence that precisely matches what is needed to produce the functions we see in nature. 
Um, and Doug Axe has done other research. Um, it's funny. Um, after the uh, Adam Shapiro debate, there was a whole bunch of conversation on you know the YouTube uh, post for that debate where people were talking about, you know, well, what is intelligent design research saying? And a, a well-known evolutionary biologist who runs the channel Creation Myths, um, Dan Cardinale, I think is how you say his name. He made a comment saying, ID research, he says, quote, has not advanced past where it was in 2004, 2005. Where's the research program? Where are the papers? Well, I mean, I had described the research program during right. the debate. That's what I, I was had, just thinking. I had quoted names of papers where our research program has published papers. And of course, Doug Axe's research was in 2004 and 2005. That is true. But you know what? There's been a lot of research, and I discussed this in the, in the debate, a lot of research mm -hmm. that has been post-2004, 2005. In fact, that was just the very beginning, Doug Axe's research. Um, Doug Axe, along with Ann Gager, did research um, in the Bio, uh, Biologic Institute from 2010 to 2015, looking at the ability to convert a particular enzyme into a very closely related enzyme. Performs a different function, but they're very closely similar enzymes. According to evolutionary science, they're so similar, you should be able to easily convert one of these enzymes to perform the function of the other because they're so similar. And according to evolution, it's very easy to sort of take an enzyme and co-opt it to perform an entirely new function. And given how closely related these two enzymes were, this should be a very easy task for Darwinian evolution to accomplish according to sort of standard evolutionary thinking. So they started mutating this enzyme. It was called cable. They started mutating this enzyme and they tried to get it to convert the function of a very close genetic relative called BioF. And what they found is that it would take at least a minimum of seven mutations in order to convert this enzyme to produce the function of BioF. This is sort of a direct test of the idea that you can easily co-opt a protein to perform a very similar and closely related function. And so this seven mutation uh, number is important because a previous uh, research paper by Doug Axe, a population genetics paper, had found that if there's any trait that requires more than six mutations before providing any function, then according to the mathematics of population genetics, if there's any trait that requires more than six mutations before providing any advantage, I should say, then that trait is very unlikely to arise given the known constraints of population sizes, mutation rates, and the timelines in the history of life. And so this is basically the simple converting of one protein into a similar protein would require more mutations than could be accomplished in the history of life. So they went on in further research that they published to look at other members of this family of proteins called the GABA amino transferase family. And they did similar experiments and found that basically this evolutionary conversion was going, if it were to take place, it would take more time than is available in the history of life on Earth. Okay, so this is all research that took place Really, I would say from like um, the late 2000s through 2015, it's been published. Um, it's real intelligence design research. It's post-2004, 2005. So maybe folks might disagree with this research. And if so, that's fine. We can talk about it. Maybe there's some areas where the, these research projects could be uh, improved. There's always room to talk about those things. But people shouldn't be just denying that this research existed. And the very fact that folks cannot even admit the existence of ID research, that says a lot about whether they're really, I think, approaching this in an objective way. We haven't even started to talk about the ID 3.0 research that's gone on in the last, you know, uh, five, six, seven years at Discovery Institute. This is all what I would have called ID 2.0 research. Um, yeah. And so there's, there's, there's other newer research that's gone on. So that's another testable prediction that we will find high CSI 
in biological systems. And a lot of the research of Doug Axe um, has, has really, uh, I'd say, confirmed this prediction. It's important to point out that these predictions were made before the research was, was done. These are not retrodictions where we were like, mm-hmm. you know, finding a conclusion and saying, oh yeah, well, we can explain that or we predicted that. I think that's a valid way to do science. Science often works by you do a, you know, make, come up with a, a model to explain pre-existing data. There's nothing wrong with that at all. And I think that you can make sort of, in a way you can make predictions as long as they flow naturally out of the model. But th- these are not that kind of a predi- uh, you know, prediction. These are true chronological predictions where we, we made the predictions prior to uh, the, the research being done. Anyway, I mean, there's other predictions that Intelligent Design makes, but I think these are two of my favorite. We can keep talking about this if you want. It's, it's, it's up to you guys. I've got other predictions, so. Thanks for that, Casey. That was Brian Auten and Chad Gross of the Apologetics 315 podcast, which you can find at apologetics315.com. And they were interviewing Casey Luskin from the Discovery Institute. We'll have more to come from this same conversation very soon. So for ID of the Future, this is Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.